This is On Boys Parenting Podcast. We are your co-hosts, Jennifer L.W. Fink, mom of four boys. And I'm Janet Allison, teacher of many more. Thanks for joining us as we share real talk about parenting, teaching, and reaching tomorrow's men. These are unprecedented times that we are living in, and Jen and I both know that it might be challenging, it might be joy-filled, and it is more than likely stressful on some level. It's all of those things, and we hope that this podcast is supporting you and helping you through some of those challenges. I want you to know that I, Janet, am personally here to support you as well. I am a family coach, and I work with parents individually. If you feel like the cracks are getting bigger and wider and you're losing your mind and you want more coping skills, you want new strategies, and maybe even you're feeling like it's time to really get to the bottom of his behavior, you can schedule a breakthrough session with me. I am waiving my fee until we are free to roam again, so it's totally free for you. We get on the phone for about 40 minutes and we talk. You can schedule a time with me at boysalive.as.me. That's boysalive.as as in Sam, dot M as in Mary, E. That takes you directly to my schedule. Fill that out and I look forward to getting on the phone with you. I'm here to support you as a family coach and Jen and I are here to support you with this podcast. We can all do this, and may we all look back on this time and know that we all did powerful work. And now, on boys. He couldn't sleep. Mike's face stung from the gash and the stitches, and a pulsing ache radiated from the back of his skull. His knuckles were shredded, and his arm throbbed under the thick bandages. Whether he closed or opened his eyes, even his eyes hurt. The images were there, like grainy documentary footage, some of it in motion, some of it still. The weight of the revolver in his hand, the stock slippery from his sweating palm, the white-hot rage that catapulted him from that bench, the smell of grass and sweat and blood, handcuffs gnawing at his wrists, the shocked faces as reflections of maple trees slid over the cruiser's tinted windows. That's the start of chapter two of Wilderness Therapy, a brand new book by Paul Cumbo. We don't ordinarily talk about fiction here on On Boys, but this book is exceptional. It's written for boys by a longtime teacher of boys, and it tackles issues that are familiar to every boy. Loss, failure, grief, family, and rage. Welcome, Paul. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. What was the genesis for this book? I know that you have written books before. This is so you were probably looking for your next book, but this one, why this? Why this topic? I think teenage boys are complex creatures. And in a couple of decades of teaching and coaching them, I've really come to appreciate uh, the, the complex nature of what's going on inside of them. 
And I wanted to tell a story about one of them wrestling with some really heavy stuff with uh, some things thrown at him that were outside of his proverbial weight class and explore the journey with him of trying to navigate those challenges and retain a sense of hope and find some redemption and continue to live his life uh, despite everything that life had thrown at him. And so I hoped that in telling Mike's story, there would be a window uh, for boys and for people who love boys, their parents, their brothers, uh, their sisters, their teachers, anybody who's charged with helping young people navigate this part of their lives uh, to help them see that even in the most complex and rugged terrain, there is a path to be found or to be made. You said at the beginning of that, teenage boys are complex creatures. And having lived with some for the last, how long have I been living with teenagers, Janet? Well, a long time. A long some time. longer um, than others. <laughs> Truer words were never spoken. Uh, And it's been such a fascinating journey to me because unlike you, Paul, I was never a teenage boy. I didn't have any perspective to bring to this aside from trying to get the attention of teenage boys. And now I find some of what I thought about teenage boys then absolutely hilarious uh, because I I didn't realize they had this whole world of their own. I like to think about the Grand Canyon as a metaphor. And I've mentioned this a few other times uh, in speaking with groups of boys and, and particularly with teachers. Uh, but, you know, the Grand Canyon is, is very, it's a complex landform, but it's, it's really subterranean. It's underground. You have to go down uh, deep to see uh, oh. the depth of it. And I, I, I often think that that's kind of a fitting metaphor for the interior lives of boys and young men and that much of it is below the surface, uh, but it's very complex and it's always mm-hmm. changing too. Uh, it's being shaped sometimes slowly, uh, but consistently by a lot of forces. So there's a lot there. Uh, and I think sometimes culture oversimplifies that yeah. uh, to a fault. And it's very interesting to, to work with, uh, with young guys on a daily basis and occasionally uh, have encounters in conversation, um, in class and teaching, uh, or, or just outside of class that really reveal that complexity because it's pretty fascinating. What's the, what is the doorway in though, especially for moms of boys who want to have, I've, I'm a family coach and I work with so many moms who long to have deep, meaningful conversations with their sons. Well, I think, I think many things um, are predicated on a, on a, a presupposition of the good and much in our culture uh, is is speaking to the opposite of that. Uh, I, I have worked for a very long time uh, in Jesuit education, and one of the principles of Jesuit philosophy, which derives from the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius, uh, is, is predicated on something called the presupposition of goodwill. And it's a little bit, uh, I suppose, could be taken as a little bit naive uh, and perhaps a dangerous way of going through life. But it asks us to position ourselves uh, somewhere where we can encounter people uh, and have a presupposition of their goodness before any judgment. And that's especially important in the face of challenging times, uh, whether those be adolescence or unique circumstances. And so I think, um, I think bearing in mind 
and, and entering into those encounters and those conversations with a, uh, an awareness and a presupposition of the good uh, and goodwill most of the time, despite consequences that sometimes don't match intentions, um, is very important. I think intentions matter and intentionality matters. You know, as we're navigating adolescence, uh, you know, how often in, in a school situation do we hear you know, a boy say, well, that, that wasn't what I meant to do, or that, that wasn't what I meant to say. And of course, consequences matter, and, and they need to, and actions matter. But that's not mutually exclusive of intentions. And I think having that disposition of leaving room uh, and benefit of the doubt for those, for those, if not perfect, but generally benevolent intentions uh, mm-hmm. on the part of most boys most of the time uh, is important. I really think that is. I think that is so huge. Janet, we've talked before about it seems like often the cultural and societal default is boys are bad, that Mm -hmm. they are potential predators. They are potential um, violent offenders that they're just, we have to rein them in so that these horrible things don't happen instead of Paul, this presupposition of the good. As you were talking, I realized that's really the theme of this book in so many ways. So this book, it's called Wilderness Therapy, and it's centered around a group of boys who meet and they interact at, basically it's this alternative juvenile justice program. Each of these boys is there because in a moment of anger, he snapped and did something that hurt somebody else. And so they have this opportunity to go to this wilderness therapy program to spend some time in an extremely remote location and, you know, learn about themselves and hopefully rehabilitate. None of these boys had a previous record. And so the whole basis behind that idea even is that somebody somewhere believed there was good in these boys. And even though they did something terrible, they weren't terrible people. I think that's a really important nuance to understand and duality to understand. A bad action uh, does not wholly define a person. In, in all fairness, I mean, there are, there are terrible things that are done uh, that in some ways occasionally really do define a lifetime. But mm. I, I think those are the rare exception, really, uh, in the grand scope of things. And uh, I think for young people, particularly of this generation, and I think we see this in some of the anxiety and the, and the issues regarding the, the value of self or questions about the value of self and life itself. There is, a, there is sometimes a question about inherent goodness. When one mistake is made or when a series of mistakes are made, uh, is that an implication that, that my life is you know, of, of reduced value? Uh, and I think countering that message uh, while acknowledging challenges is, is really the way to do it. And I'm, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a counselor and I'm not a psychologist, but uh, as a parent, I think, and just as a human being, I, I think there's a great value in looking at uh, a messy situation and acknowledging the mess, but then mm-hmm. being able to say, it's not all mess. It's not all mess. And where do we go from here? Because there is redemption. I like that you say you're not a counselor, you're not a psychologist, but the truth is you're a parent. <laughs> So you take on those roles. You're a teacher. So you take on those roles. You're a coach. You take on those roles. Whether we have that professional experience or not, we are called to that. And that's why it's frustrating and difficult sometimes. We so often as parents, as teachers, find ourselves confronted with these situations and we don't really know what to do. 
you're suggesting um, one very healthy thing to do is to assume that there is good in that fellow human being, even if he just did what seems to us the stupidest thing, don't understand how or why he possibly thought that was a good idea. I think another thing that's that's important, uh, and and this I have heard, you know, from some expert voices, some of whom were kind enough to to chime in and, and offer uh, uh, friendly blurbs about the book, and you can find you them. You can on drop the cover. some names here because uh, these are these are big <laughs> names, and they are very yeah, relevant yeah. to our audience. Yeah, Leonard well, Sachs and very, Michael Gurian. They're you know. Very, very grateful uh, to those two men, along with uh, Michael Reichert, um, all of whom offered some some great perspective. But, you know, one thing I learned, um, and in fact, I, I have to credit Michael Gurian with this, was learning about the importance of a, uh, of a kinetic situation, uh, of a kinetic encounter uh, when you're working particularly with boys. Mm-hmm. Um, I think boys and girls are more alike than they are different, uh, but there are definitely some important differences, and there are really smart uh, people who have <laughs> done a good job pointing out some of those at the on the kind of neuropsychological level, I suppose. But you know, for me, one thing I learned um, is the importance of movement uh, and momentum. A uh, physical momentum uh, helps to kind of tie in the uh, the physiological and and the, and the biological that ties in with the with the gut and the feeling uh, and the emotional. Mm-hmm. So you know, when I have a, a tricky situation to talk with uh, with a student, for example. I have found much more success if we go for a walk on the backfield uh, or throw a ball back and forth and talk, even if we're just tossing a ball back and forth across my desk. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is very different from let's sit down and look at each other and talk, yeah. uh, which is, as parents, uh, I, I presume you know, oftentimes results in a stalemate and a staring contest, um, and you're not going to win it. And I think um, with boys, and, and I don't presume to have any any real experiential knowledge of working with, with uh, teenage girls. But I think with teenage boys, that movement piece is so important. And, and that's part of why uh, in the story, uh, if you read it, and I'm, I'm avoiding spoilers here on purpose, of course, but you know, there's, there's a great deal of hiking and climbing uh, and, work. That, and work and physical manual labor, which uh, you know, seemingly has nothing to do with the therapeutic aspects of, of the clinical work that's being undertaken by Liz, uh, who is kind of the, the lead counselor, um, but in fact is, is part and parcel to it, yeah. and, I, and I think really crucial. So that, I guess that's a, if there's a useful sort of tidbit takeaway, um, mm-hmm. you want to talk about something serious, you want to help get uh, onto the emotional landscape with a boy, um, move, invite mm-hmm. him to move with you in whatever way is possible. And purposeful work. Purposeful work, which you, um, I want to make sure that we talk about your service oriented retreats because that is purposeful work. And I'm guessing there's, you know, maybe not the therapeutic aspect officially in that, but tell us about that work that you do and how it supports boy development. Well, that uh, it finds its genesis back in, in an experience that I had when I was 20. Uh, and my brother, who is a physician, was uh, a resident at Johns Hopkins and involved in a series of high-altitude research um, in the Nepal Himalaya. And that experience at age 20 was very, very profound for me. Uh, without going into a lot of backstory, I had come off a period of extraordinarily uh, painful depression. Uh, after quitting the U.S. Coast Guard Academy, 
uh, and kind of having my my planned military future uh, just dissolve. And the invitation to make that uh, global travel and to see a culture that was so foreign to the one that I knew uh, and to engage myself in something that became not only scientific research, but took on an, a, a service bent all against the backdrop of pilgrimage was so influential to me. Uh, and so early in my teaching career uh, at Georgetown Prep, I was fortunate to, uh, to take leadership of a program called Somos Amigos, which means we are friends. Mm -hmm. uh, and that saw immersive service in the Dominican Republic. Uh, since that time, uh, a few colleagues and I have had the opportunity to bring that uh, to other schools and engage in, in this type of service work uh, in varied countries, mostly the, the DR, Dominican Republic, uh, and uh, Nicaragua, as well as throughout the U.S. And I think, uh, to answer your question, finally, the work element of that is, is not, the, uh, it's not the end in mind, but it is a means to an end. Because in that purposeful work and in that disconnection, there's a sort of disconnection to reconnect to what matters. Uh, and we see that with the boys that we work with. The travel piece is so important. It doesn't have to be far. Uh, we do immersive work like this right here in Buffalo, New York. Being out of the comfort zone positions oneself uh, to, I think, strip away certain barriers to self-knowledge uh, and to the encounter of relationships. And so that foreign experience is, is vitally important uh, to, uh, to digging deep, I think. And as you're building in service and projects and doing things, you have that movement piece that you referred to before. I know I've noticed, and Janet, you preach it. Movement helps boys process what they're experiencing, what they're learning. It, as they're moving, it's like their brains are also moving through and making sense and trying to understand what's happening in a way that doesn't happen if you were to simply put them in a group, sit down and, okay, let's talk through this and process it. That works for me, but it doesn't work for my teenage sons. Well, and I love in the book when they are in that processing situation with Liz, with the, the therapist, that there it's dark. It's a campfire. You mm -hmm. can stare into the fire. You don't have to look at each other. So there's this other dynamic happening that makes it easier to have those difficult conversations. Yeah, you know, one of the things I, I learned in the course of writing this book and, and working with a really skilled editor uh, is that in the dialogue pieces, when you have a boy, you know, kind of offering an extended uh, story, you know, these, these boys tell their backstory in, in parcels throughout the story, uh, throughout the novel, rather, uh, you got to build in, you know, the realism of what guys this age do while they're talking. They, they yeah. generally don't just sit there. Uh, they're, they're fidgeting often. They're, they're staring off. They're redirecting. They're, they're kicking something. They're, uh, man, the power of a fire uh, to kind of, you know, have a stick that you're twisting in the coals is, is a powerful image. And I think it's a universal, I think it's a universally familiar image. Mm -hmm. You know, we can all, we can, we can almost all picture that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it, it just works because it's real. It's funny that you should say that. And Janet, I hadn't put this together as I was reading it either, but my boys and I love to camp and, you know, time around the fire is of course a big thing. And you're talking about, you know, poking with the stick. Oh yeah, that's a thing, you know, 
all kinds of poking and backup and all years and years and years of that. But a few years ago, they were much younger, but I would read aloud to them around the fire. I would have my flashlight and I would read a book and they would listen to that in a way they wouldn't at home. And my boys are pretty old right now. 22 year olds, independent and in Tennessee, 19, uh, 17, 14. We are going camping in a week, I think. And part of me, Paul, is thinking about taking this particular book along and reading it around the fire because this is compelling stuff. And they might think they're too old for this, but I guarantee they will be hooked. They will be riveted. Yeah. Great idea. I also have to say, um, you guys are going to have to go to the show notes and look at the picture. The picture on the front is very moody and it's compelling. It's kind of a gray tones. There's a boy with a backpack overlooking a lake and a cabin. And I do believe your brother is the illustrator. Is that correct? Yeah, Dave. My brother Dave, is a uh, he's a professional graphic artist. He grew up doing video games and doing some animation for a, a very well-known studio in uh, Southern California. And uh, when, I, when I did my first book, I approached him and said, hey, can you help me with the cover? And I was, I was just blown away by what he, by what he created. And we've worked uh, ever since on, on four books. This latest one, I really appreciate what he was able to do because, as you said, it's moody. Uh, this is a moody story about about moody kids because we're all we're all that way in some ways. So here's uh, some excellent feedback for you, for your brother, and I want all the listeners to hear this as well. I obviously ordered the book for myself and I read it first. I was telling my 14 year old about the book. I'm like, I really think you would like this one, and he's not a huge reader. I showed it to him yesterday. He looked at the cover and he said, "Ooh, that looks like a book I would like." Well, that's good to hear. <laughs> right? Like, mission accomplished. Right, 14 right. 14-year-old boy glanced at the cover and said, that looks like a book I would like. Well, that's, that's great to hear. You know, it's, it's funny. It's, it's classified as a, as a young adult book. You know, that's my editor worked uh, for one of the big five publishers for a long time. And, and she said, you know, this story, the industry is going to call this a YA novel. Uh, and, and I, okay, I, I'll, I'll go with that. But... Um, I, I found that much of the attention that this is getting uh, and much of the attention that my other book, Boarding Pass, got, uh, it really, it, it came mostly from uh, middle-aged moms uh, and people who had, who Your had fan uh, base, raised boys. Paul. Yeah, it really, if you had told me that I was going to, that my primary readership was going to be, you know, women between, you know, anywhere from, I don't know, 30 to 60, I, I would have said, I don't think so. But uh, it's, it's turned out to be the case. Every book group I go to, every book club that I've spoken to, I mean, not that I've spoken to a lot of them, but four or five, uh, it, it's mostly uh, that demographic. And the, the affinity for the book is, man, I, I see my, my husband, I see my son, uh, I see my nephew, I see my, my male students, whoever it might be. That's uh, it. So that's nice to hear. That's yeah, nice to hear. it's just such a, a real picture of, of this inner life that we talked about. I want to talk about you're a teacher and you're teaching high school boys and I hear from a lot of parents that their sons are not that enthusiastic about reading. And what would you say to those parents? Like, how do you encourage reading and writing, not just of teens, but like, how can you, how can we help moms with parents with younger kids foster a love of reading for boys, especially? 
Yeah, that's it's a tricky question and it's a common question. Uh, I'd like to fall back on the simple answer, which is, you know, start start by finding things that are more likely to be of interest. And, you know, I don't think there's any any brilliant revelation in my saying that, but it that doesn't mean it's not an important consideration. You know, there are there are a number of uh, pieces of excellent literature which are unlikely to be captivating to you know to a younger boy. That being said, though, I, I do think that there's a bigger uh, there's kind of a bigger picture awareness to have, and and that's to help boys understand that you know there is a very old, very masculine tradition uh, to the arts, you know, into writing, into reading, into music, and I think oftentimes, and and I don't mean that it's exclusively masculine, but I mean that it's not exclusively feminine either. And uh, I think there are elements of our of our culture, our educational system that that tend to downplay that. Uh, in in terms of having boys be aware that wow you know there's this ancient sort of classical tradition uh, of of men who you know if you look at Julius Caesar for example right I mean arguably one of the world's most uh, famous and 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 rightly so military minds and uh, and military heroes if if you'll if you'll permit the word hero. Um, but at the same time, uh, a man of, of arts and letters mm-hmm. uh, whose writing is remarkably emotionally nuanced, uh, almost surprisingly so for, you know, for a guy who was charged with conquering much of the world. Um, man, what a, you know, what, what a softy in some places, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's important for, for boys to see that it's, it's something that is an old tradition uh, to which they can become a part. Yeah, the scholarly tradition. You think about the ancient Greeks and Aristotle and Plato spending their days in conversation and literature and sure, the arts. Sure. Yeah. You know, there's the, the Scottish warrior poet or, you know, the, uh, there's all kinds of those traditions where it's mm-hmm. that duality, you know, there's, there's both the, uh, you know, the pieces of masculinity that our culture tends to emphasize, whether it be athleticism or, uh, you know, achievement that is, that is very objective. Uh, but on the other hand, there's also this other element of it. Uh, and those two, those two things working in, in sort of dynamic parallel, um, I think that's ultimately what is attractive uh, to boys. And framing reading and writing as a way to, to develop that dynamism, that duality, I think that's kind of an appealing prospect. What do your, what do your students enjoy? What, do you, what books do they like well there's a there's a range of things we've done i I guess the one i'll talk about uh right now is mary shelley's frankenstein is uh something that i did with my ninth grade uh, honors class this past year and man they were they were really into that and they were into it more than i thought they'd be we dove into that story by looking at uh leonardo da vinci's vitruvian man and we talked about the concept of the balanced man i mean Mm -hmm. that that image you know literally portrays uh, proportionality and balance. And we use that as a window to talk about the difference between passion and obsession. And when does passion become mm. obsession? And certainly for, you know, for Victor Frankenstein, um, that becomes a bridge too far, uh, you know, to terrible effect and to terrible consequence. But man, they were into that. And I, I think uh, as a general rule, it is good to, it is good to give boys something to read that poses a really, a really deep human challenge uh, where somebody comes face to face with that stone wall 
which is like our, ourselves. You know, we, we mm-hmm. run into the stone wall of our own weaknesses, our own iniquities, and then man, do we have to scramble to climb up it? Um, I think that that can that can attract them. And there's plenty of action and all those sorts of things too. But I hesitate even to say like you know find something action packed, et cetera, because I think it plays into a stereotype that you know if it's not action packed and it doesn't involve loud things and things exploding. Uh, that it can't be of interest to, you know, to boys and men. I, you know, mm-hmm. I think that's silly. Um, but yeah, Frankenstein, that was, that was something that's I found, great. found very compelling for them. Yeah. As you were talking about uh, the duality, both with Frankenstein and with this historical tradition, um, Julius Caesar, military mind, success, also a man of arts, letters, and love over here. In a lot of ways, we have lost that our boys don't necessarily see that our boys are surrounded in these one dimensional depictions of this is what a man should be with a strong emphasis on strength and power and not nearly as much on expressing your emotion. And this leads often to kind of anger being the default emotion, anger being the only emotion that feels safe to express. And in the book, I couldn't help but notice that anger was what caused each of these boys to do something that led them to wilderness therapy. Talk about that a little bit, how anger is the default emotion for so many boys and how we as parents and teachers can maybe help them add some subtlety to that. Well, I I think that, first of all, anger is it is one of the most accessible emotions for any of us, unfortunately. Uh, and, and simultaneously it's the one over which we probably have the least control. So it's very accessible. Uh, it's very quick, uh, for many, you know, I, I realize I'm speaking in generalizations here, but, um, that's because I think it's generally true. It's right there under the surface. And once it's there, man, you can't, you can't ignore it. You know, you can't miss it because it's there and it often, it often has a physical manifestation. I think more so uh, and more noticeably than other emotions do. You know, we, we can be able, we can get teary-eyed or we can get misty-eyed or we can well up, we can feel that pressure in our throat and our chest, but that's not necessarily as noticeable as smashing something. So right. anger is one of the most powerful and accessible, unfortunately, uh, or, or not, I don't know, um, emotions, and it's probably something that uh, we have the least handle on. So that makes it frightening. Mm-hmm. It makes it very frightening. So anger is right there for so many of us, our boys especially. But ideally, we want to help them identify and find and channel some of those other emotions. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give away too many spoilers. But for instance, Mike, the main character in this book, he's dealing with a lot of grief. His father had died. His brother died. His mom, in her grief, is kind of drowning in bottle. So instead of admitting I'm sad or I'm depressed, it just builds up. How can we as parents, teachers, uh, members of the community, help our boys develop a more refined, I don't want to say refined emotional response, help our boys express their full range of emotions and maybe deal with that anger before it becomes so all consuming. 
Well, first of all, I, I think uh, that there is a value to to normalizing it. And, and when I say normalizing it, I, I don't mean to say be cavalier and say, you know, let your anger out anytime you're feeling, you know, upset, uh, you know, with abandon. That's not my point. But I do think it's important to, um, you know, just as we would say to a boy who is, you know, wrestling with some of the rather uncomfortable surprises that come with early adolescence and puberty, for example, you know, to, to normalize those things and say, look, let me, let me put this in perspective for you. Uh, it, it isn't just you, man, right? Okay. Yeah, this, right. Is a, this is a normal aspect of, of human life. Um, and I think the same is true for the emotional landscape. So normalizing it and putting it out there and recognizing it is, is really important. Um, because until you do that, you don't know what you're talking about. So I think inviting, you know, guys to, to articulate, you know, it, maybe after the storm passes, yeah. you know, what was that like? Um, you know, in motion, perhaps, right? right. Uh, is is the right way to do that because then it's relatable. It's like, well, yeah. I mean, I've I've felt like that. Let me tell you about a time I felt like that too. Each of um, the boys in the story kind of thought he was the only one mm-hmm. that had had that experience. So part of the power of them coming together at this wilderness therapy camp was that they heard, oh, other people have been here too. Yeah, the solidarity piece is so important. I mean, I've seen that in a lot of uh, retreat work. And of course, in those immersive service experiences, there's a great deal of kind of group solidarity that comes out in those conversations. We, you know, we see this in, there's all sorts of, you know, clinical approaches, right, uh, that, that involve kind of solidarity and just sharing what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, if it can be done in the course of something else where, you know, the sharing is not necessarily the end in mind. Uh, but the sharing comes out in the course of things, you know, the involvement in, um, you know, in things like teams, you know, teams that have a healthy culture, uh, mm-hmm. is so important for boys, you know, not just because of the teamwork and the cooperation piece, but also because I think they provide the natural arena, uh, to have those kind of conversations in an impromptu way when they're necessary. You know, some of the best memories I have of coaching in terms of working with athletes, are the conversations that I would have. I was a rowing coach for about 12 years and we did a lot of road trips and the conversations that would happen, you know, in the, in the, in the van or in the bus with, uh, with the team on the way to races or back from them. Uh, or when we were out in, in the, when I was in the coaching launch and, you know, I'd have nine guys in the boat, uh, and maybe one guy in the launch who I would be, you know, switching in and out those opportunities, um, are there because of an established relationship of trust. Uh, and then that solidarity is is natural uh, mm-hmm. and it comes out. Yeah. I want to touch on one other aspect, and that is intrinsic motivation. We hear from a lot of parents, they're worried about their boys. He has no motivation. He just wants to play video games. He doesn't get off the couch. He doesn't want to do anything. What would you say to those parents? I think this is another either or versus both and question uh, and posing to boys that uh, there's a both and operative here. There is value in this, in this book learning, if you'll put it that way. Uh, but there is also value in other forms of learning and other forms of work and other things that you're doing and other pursuit. Uh, and one is not really more important than the other. Uh, they're both important. 
It's a both and prospect. And I, I really think that uh, in, in my work with teenagers, anytime you enter into a situation where there's, where there's a, like this clear dichotomy where this is good and this is bad, you're immediate, and, and that's not to say there are not things that are you know good and bad. There there is polarity right. out there, right? But um, very often we artificially impose that on situations, and yeah. you know what's the adolescent default? It's it's to rebel and it's to push back against what you say is good. Well, no, I'm going to point out all the reasons why it isn't. So I think uh, coming at uh, and that's a more general answer, I think, but it, but it applies to what you asked. Coming at it with it with a both and mentality and saying. Let me give credence to what you're saying, mm-hmm. uh, and then let me offer you this perspective too, right? I mean, isn't that one of the seven habits of, of Stephen Covey is, you know, you want to have a good argument, um, first articulate the value of the opposite perspective, yeah. because geez, you what have you done? You've, you've positioned yourself as somebody who gets the value of what you're saying first. Mm-hmm. You are expressing this so much more eloquently than I ever did, but really what he's saying is why I value Sam, my 14 year old, why I value and prioritize his time in the garage, working on his machines and his lawnmower at least as much as him doing his schoolwork, if not more. Because as you said, there's, there's value to the book learning, but there's also value to these other things that our boys want to do. And so often in our desire to elevate the one, or because we think that's the path forward. We don't allow room for the other. And then, like you said, it becomes this battle of wills where he, they just fight against us and say, screw it, I'm going to do my thing and I'm not going to listen to you. And since you don't value the thing that I thought was important, I'm not going to do that either. And, yeah. and what a wonderful thing it is when we can find ways for them to merge, coalesce, and overlap you know, when one can inform the other, where the mm-hmm. book learning can inform that uh, out-of-school pursuit uh, and vice versa. And I think some of that is, is you know, that falls, uh, the burden falls on schools. And, uh, it, you know, it would, it would take our conversation in a whole different direction to talk <laughs> about the many ways in which the way we do school is arguably in many cases not necessarily designed well in general uh, for, for most boys. Um, and that, that's a strong statement, I know. Uh, but I'm right there with you. There's something to right it. Right there with you. It's, it's really time to reevaluate how we are doing education. And gosh, maybe this pandemic will have some something to do with looking at that in a fresh way. Mm-hmm. And vocational education, all of the hands-on project learning is so boy-friendly. And we need to really give that its full due, I believe. So I'm guessing that most of our listeners are having the same thought I am right now, which is, Paul, can you come teach at my son's school? <laughs> well, I, I, I think I've got to stay put. I've got, <laughs> I've got three little ones at home and, um, you know, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm enjoying where I am. But uh, what, what, what you can do is you can, uh, you can read about um, Mike Whitaker uh, in wilderness therapy, and uh, you'll you'll get some uh, some proxy, uh, I guess, some proxy teaching from there, maybe. Yeah, yeah, it's just a fabulous read. I highly recommend it to our listeners. And I I was telling Paul I read it in 
about a day and a half. I just was, it's a page turner for sure for your, for your fan base of middle-aged women. (laughs) But I also think that your boys will enjoy this. And that is a, that's something, Paul, to have a book that both middle-aged moms and teenage boys enjoy. Well, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) I really appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you so much for being with us. This has been a great conversation. And as you said, we could have gone in many different tangents, but uh, I think there's lots of lots of meat to consider in this conversation. Teenage boys are complex creatures. And if we can come at them with a presumption of good, many good things can happen. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you very much. These are unprecedented times that we are living in. And Jen and I both know that it might be challenging. It might be joy-filled. And it is more than likely stressful on some level. It's all of those things. And we hope that this podcast is supporting you and helping you through some of those challenges. I want you to know that I, Janet, am personally here to support you as well. I am a family coach and I work with parents individually. If you feel like the cracks are getting bigger and wider and you're losing your mind and you want more coping skills, you want new strategies, and maybe even you're feeling like it's time to really get to the bottom of his behavior, you can schedule a breakthrough session with me. I am waiving my fee until we are free to roam again, so it's totally free for you. We get on the phone for about 40 minutes and we talk. You can schedule a time with me at boysalive.as.me. That's boysalive.as as in Sam, dot M as in Mary, E. That takes you directly to my schedule. Fill that out, and I look forward to getting on the phone with you. I'm here to support you as a family coach, and Jen and I are here to support you with this podcast. We can all do this, and may we all look back on this time and know that we all did powerful work. Thanks for joining On Boys, real talk about parenting, teaching, and reaching tomorrow's men.